This episode is dedicated to Anne and Ed Davis. Thank you for supporting the conversation. This project is built on a hypothesis. There are moments in history when the status quo fails. Political systems prove insufficient, religious ideas unsatisfactory, social structures intolerable. These are moments of crisis. During some of these moments, great minds have entered into conversation and torn apart inherited ideas. Dethroning truths, combining old thoughts, and creating new ideas, they've shaped the norms of future generations. Every era has its issues, but do ours warrant the conversation? If they do, is it happening? We'll be exploring these sorts of questions through conversations with a cross-section of American thinkers, people who are critiquing some aspect of normality and offering an alternative vision of the future, people who might be having the conversation. Like a real conversation, this project is going to be subjective. It will frequently change directions, connect unexpected ideas, and wander between the tangible and the abstract. It will leave us with far more questions than answers because, after all, nobody has a monopoly on dreaming about the future. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Mike Saul. And you're listening to The Conversation. Well, this conversation will be like nothing you've heard before. Yes, that is very true. I almost feel like we don't need to say much here. No, I think there are maybe a few words in order. Yeah. The first being, well, do you want to do his bio? And then I'll tell people a little bit more about the episode and why we're including it. Sure. Uh, So today's conversation is with Richard Saul Werman. He is the founder of TED. He is the founder of... The EG Conference. Most recently, he's the founder of the WWW Conference. He's a incredibly prolific author, and there's all sorts of interviews and conversations and bios and stuff about him online. He really doesn't need a whole lot of introduction. But this conversation is very different, and it's different because it doesn't connect to other conversations. I went into this conversation wanting to talk to Richard, about the idea of conversation itself, because as you can tell from his the list of conferences that he's organized, he's brought a lot of people together for conversation. And so you won't hear the connections to other episodes. There will be implicit ones. Um, and towards the end, as always, we move into philosophy a lot more. But this is really a talk about conversation. So let's just begin there. I've written a lot of books, and they've been on a lot of different subjects, from medicine to sports to travel, a lot on cartography. They've been driven by my inability to understand things, by my ignorance. So in this book I wrote 20 years ago called Information Anxiety, one chapter in the book, I decided to write the chapter on on how information is organized. And I realized that the fundamental way that I was taught to organize things had to go, went back to the ditty we sang at school, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. 
we were dominated. Our society was dominated. Our dictionaries, our thesauruses, our our uh, encyclopedias, our filing cabinets, our rolodexes were all alphabetical. Everything we did was alphabetical, and we didn't realize that there were other ways we could organize things in a fundamental sense. And I thought, gee, there must be thousands of ways of organizing things. There must be just so many ways. And I sat down and I could only think of five. And I couldn't think of a sixth. And I gave speeches saying that I was surprised. I mean, the book was out. I called it Latch, Location, Alphabet, Time, Category, and Hierarchy. And I said, if there's a six, my next speech will say there's six. After 10 years, nobody came up with a sixth. I said, okay, I think it's safe to say there's not more than 10. That there's not that many ways in a fundamental sense of organizing things. Recently, I've, there's been a word that's crept into our language called innovation. Uh, outside of San Francisco, they call it the innovation city. There's innovation cars that have a backup camera so you can, that's called innovation, so you can see who you run over. There's innovation everywhere. So it's lost its meaning. So I wanted to see if I, are there thousands of ways of innovation? And once again, I could only come up with five. And uh, one of those ways was subtraction. Um, one of the five was subtraction. And I realized that the Bauhaus movement was an art movement based on subtraction. When I created the TED conference, I subtracted out all the things that people were doing in conferences, white men in suits, uh, panels, lecterns, long speeches. I took all the pieces that were the, the alphabet of conferences the pieces that made up the conferences, and I subtracted them. Well, I did TED in 1984. Uh, I did my last one in 2002. And at this moment in my life, I was thinking, well, what are other ways that people can gather? What else can I subtract? Maybe I didn't really do a good enough job. And I realized there's a couple things I could subtract, and one of them was time. The 18-minute thing was not a big deal. I could subtract time completely. Uh, and I could also subtract presentations. I could subtract something that had been made and that I was party to, made more elaborate. And they did all those things not as well as they do in ads on television or not as well as they did on television programs or on films. And it was a conference. So what going backwards, what really is a conference? What is the essential thing of a gathering? What are the few things that make us human? 90% um, of our cells are not human cells. We're made up of things that are listed separately in LaRusse's book of animal life. Um, so what, what makes us human? What do we do that's, that's human? if you just reduce, re reduce them down like a cook makes a reduction. The, one of the residues that's left is always conversation. What do we do? How do ideas form? 
what is my fantasy of Watson and Crick? They had a conversation and they came up with DNA. Uh, so many things in my life have come out with, out of conversation, with sometimes just hearing myself talk, but to somebody else. And several of my books I've written by having a long conversation with somebody where they didn't really answer back, but it was the nodding of their head that allowed it to come out, much as we're doing now. Uh, and uh, I realized that many of my books, what I was designing was how to have a conversation with the written page. So conversation has been consistently a, uh, a model in my head of being human. For quite a while, I've spoken about how we're not taught at any time in our life how to ask a question and how to talk on the phone. And most people think they know how to ask a question and they know how to talk on the phone. And yet I have found that 98% of questions are either bad questions or speeches and most phone calls are terrible. And yet we have this sense that we don't have to learn that. And yet there is an art to that. There is a construction to that. There is a structure to it. And I uh, am really interested in that part of the word question, which is the word quest. And I'm interested in that part of the word information, which is inform. And I'm really interested in the informed quest. And the informed quest is a conversation. There is a structure to conversation. The beginning of this last conference I did, which was called Intellectual Jazz, was the subtext of the title of it. And the title was? WWW. And that was a subject title because it was all the W words in our life. Uh, the world, wind, water, war. The last one, I had about 10 of them. The last one was called The Waking Dream. Um, but the subtext was intellectual jazz because jazz is an improvised conversation of two musicians or more. And uh, beginning of the conference, the very beginning, I said, welcome to the great leap backwards. That what is going to take place in the next two and a half days could have taken place 2,500 years ago in an amphitheater in Greece without amplification, we wouldn't need any AV. And it hasn't changed much since then. It just hasn't changed. And things that don't change are quite interesting. I can say fairly calmly conversation will be here in 100 years, in 200 years. If there's life on Earth, there'll be people talking to each other. Uh, no matter how we augment those, those conversations, as we have augmented it with the telephone, we're going to have conversation. <laughs> we're going to talk to each other. We're going to express ourselves that way. And conversation is about questions. Often a conversation is about getting a, 
asking a question and getting a question back and asking a question back and taking things in this kind of braid of question and answer, of general to more specific to very detailed to something general again. And there is a physics to how we talk. And there's a structure to how we talk. And there's importance in the silences. If you leave that silence in when you edit, you'll see how important it is. And when I give speeches, I am purposely silent. And there's an edginess about that. Of people thinking, well, he's 77, maybe he just doesn't know what to say next. Or he's lost his way. Or what did he just say? And you engage in it in a different way when the person comes back. So there's a certain part of conversation that's theater, that isn't rehearsed and edited and rehearsed and edited and auditioned for and rehearsed and edited as a TED Talk. I don't know why we should use those same modalities for building a conference and not embrace in the conference the live theater of a conference and the, the flow of, of non-rehearsed action. And so that's what I was trying to do there and trying to understand what that art was and what that structure was, what was terrifying and what was comfortable about it. And would it work? And would you naturally turn to the audience even though it was two couches facing each other and the audience here? Was the interest in the other person and what they were going to say back to you more interesting than pleasing the audience? And to a man, it was more interesting to talk to another person than turn to the audience. And to a man or a person or a woman, to the, to the conversationalist, it was more important to, to get back and forth in that, uh, in that uh, tango than to say, and I just finished a new book. It seems like there's so much energy that actually goes into a good conversation that if you are looking out there, you can't be all here. Like right now, I have to be all here to follow what you're saying. Well, you're you know? listening. And you're, you have to learn how to listen. And, uh, and I do listen to what people say. Uh, and I listen to them using words that are not real words anymore. No worries, they say. Well, yeah, that's, not a, that's not correct. Uh, many things like that have crept into our language very quickly. Then they'll stay. They'll get intense. Then they'll die off and another one will come in. Um, each one is equally annoying. And my grammar is not particularly good and my vocabulary is decent but not wonderful. And uh, I'm not well read and, and, uh, and I can't read a hard book. So it's not a, a snobberish kind of uh, intellect that's saying this. It's just, it's just not appropriate not to listen or speak well. And that's not taught anymore. 
two ears, one mouth. You should listen twice as well as you talk. And you should see in your mind what you're hearing in your ears. We're talking about things that we don't learn to do regarding conversation. Questioning. Questioning. Telephone calls. Silence. Pace. Time. Things that are fundamental, the alphabet of our human interaction. We are never, there's not even the briefest lesson in that by our parents or our so-called teachers. What do we lose by not having those lessons? Elegance, ideas, uh, the ability to innovate, creativity, all the stuff we like, we lose. Particularly when you see that the people who do all the things we admire do ask good questions, do listen very well, do have good conversations, do all those things, that they have self-learned those or seen the importance of them. I extend words to encompass more things, and I, I, I don't think of conversation being you and I talking the same way uh, I don't think of a map being just cardiographic. Some marvelous, one in particular uh, 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 film of Picasso painting a painting. It's a, an amazing documentary. It just shows him painting a painting, stays with him. He paints and he rubs out and he paints over. And at least 30 or 40 times it's a masterpiece. And he just pushes and takes the stuff away and changes it. And you say, no, 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 don't, no, it's, it's too beautiful. And he's having a conversation with this. I mean, that's a, a man having a conversation with the painting. He's having a conversation with colors, with images, with form, with stories, with emotions with violence, with calmness, with beauty, with sex, with, I mean, with all kinds of things. He's having a conversation with a flat surface of something that isn't talking back, but it is talking back to him and changing its mind and telling him what to do next. And he's seeing his failure and correcting it. And his failure and correcting, he's going in this, this dance. I was asked on stage, stage about two years ago because I was particularly outrageous that day at giving a speech and somebody was supposed to interview me and I didn't want to be interviewed and I was just going off and he said you know well who do you think you are <laughs> you know he was sort of getting fed up with me and I let the silence take over and I said I'm a dance I'm the tango. A tango is violent and sexual. It is filled with rules and anti-rules. And it has two partners. Well, it has partners. And the partners are love and hate. They're terror and confidence. Their ignorance and understanding, their complexity and their clarity. And at every moment, I am both partners. 
And that is who I am. I am that dance. And my life is that dance. The bifurcation, the yin-yang of parallel opposing forces in balance. And that's what I aim for. I'm always terrified. I'm always confident. Conversation has that bifurcation because a question and an answer is a bifurcation. Um, part of conversation is this nodding, is the engagement, is the mudra that we all accept as part of making contact with another human being, the humanism of it. Conversation also can be destructive. In that earliest stage of conversation about an idea about almost anything, it can be absolutely destroyed. In the blink of an eye, if it doesn't breathe like a good red wine and have that time to sit and have no response. So conversation isn't always about response. It's about respect. It's a fine-tuned thing. It's music. The other type of conversation that we haven't talked about yet is the idea of the big society-wide conversation. Historical moments where it seems like a whole populace has been awake and talking to each other about new ideas. Is that something different? Because it doesn't have the immediate back and forth of the conversation? I can't agree or disagree with you that it has happened or will happen or does happen or can happen and we should make it happen. Um, I'm not interested in it. I am not interested whatsoever in my audience. If I think about, well, here's the people who have signed up for my conference. Who do I think they would like to have me invite to speak? then I change my speaking list. I'm not going to change my speaking list. Uh, I am uh, just going to try to do good work of something that interests me, which is the only thing I understand anyway. I really don't understand what interests you. Um, I can't possibly know what's going on in your head now. No way. And I certainly don't know what's going on in the audience's head. Uh, I am aware that uh, what I've done in the past in various books and in various media and in conferences, I can see that it has an effect on events, an effect on people. But I haven't tried to have that effect. I know it will have that effect if I do good work. I believe it'll have that effect, but I don't know what that effect will be. And I don't have a mission. I am not doing ideas that matter. I can't judge what matters. I can only judge what's interesting. My goal for my life is to have interesting days. It's not any more than that. It's, it's not, I don't have a great religious passion uh, just to have interesting days. I have a definition of learning which is, sounds glib, but it is rock solid. And that is learning is remembering what you're interested in. The word interest is in that definition. 
interesting days is in what I, in my goal for life. It's all the same thing. I never use the word education, which is from the top down. Always use the word interest, guides, connections, convergence, and memory. Without remembering anything, without your memory, you haven't learned anything, and you're really not human. You don't exist. Um, so, I know how un-PC that makes me, uh, but I don't believe in PC. Is the conference then a way to create an interesting day for you? Yep. And to do good work. What's the good work? I can understand the interesting day. I don't mean good in a religious sense. I mean, I had a problem to solve. Does my belief in conversation and people's reaction to one another, does the design of that, the staging of it, the pairing of people, the premises, was I up enough on the work of the small particle physicist and the biologist and the poet? Was I up enough to think of a premise and keep them on point and that I was a conscience enough for them to get their game up? that I knew enough about design that the stage would work, that I knew enough about music that the music would work, that I knew enough about food to design every piece of food they had at breakfast, break, lunch, break, and dinner. Each thing is part of doing good work. It's a design. Now, I don't tell the audience any of that because I don't care. I care. The good work, then, is solving a the problem. problem. That's right. And the problem is... The problem. The problem is the boring day? No, the problem is uh, inventing a modality of how people converse and learn and, and how I learn from them and surrounding myself with people smarter than myself and seeing threads and patterns, expected and unexpected, and hopefully sometimes better than anticipated. Is sharing that experience part of? I, I know that happens. It's not the driving force. Why do a conference and not a dinner party? Well, for the 18 years I ran TED, I started by saying, welcome to my dinner party. I always wanted to have, but couldn't. It is a dinner party. So the conference is then part of the problem solving in that it's almost like we can't have that dinner party without the conference as the justification? Well, because of the, just the numerics involved, the costs, the numbers of people, all those things. But it is a dinner party, is, is, the, is the paradigm. This has been amazing. And I, your candor takes me off guard as an interviewee, which I really am enjoying. What, what, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm thinking, so when I was rehearsing our conversation in advance, trying to think of things that I would want to ask and things that I would want to pursue, I wasn't expecting that you would just say, no, I'm really just curious basically in hearing these thoughts and having an interesting day and that the rest of it, who cares? You wanted me to have a mission. Well, I think everyone expect, does have some kind of a mission. Or you expected me to have a mission. I didn't know what kind of mission you would have. And of course, I mean, I guess you do have a mission if an interesting day is a mission, right? And that's... Assuaging my curiosity, seeing connections... Part of what I think I'm trying to do with this project 
is moving towards an answer that I think doesn't exist. Probably, right, yeah. Well, and, and yeah. I, I can't say that comfortably. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. exist. It doesn't exist, right. Um, but the question is one of what is a better future? And the, part of the assumption, of course, is that the present is, could be improved upon. And that's one it of the also things that assumes I, that I care about a better future. Right. And that's what's so interesting because everyone, I you, I think you're the first person I've spoken to in this project who would be willing to say that. Yeah. <laughs> but that it would enter my mind. It makes me think, you know, we're talking about the precise definitions of words. It makes me think hedonism in like the Greek well, definition. You, you can think of hedonism. You can think of indulgence. Uh, I, yeah, Self-centered. I guess, you can think of all those words that are the ugly words of our society. Well, I, I don't think of hedonism as an ugly no, no, word but, per but se. People, but it is thought of as an ugly word, and I understand that. And indulgences and, you know, all those things. I understand that. I understand the vulnerability of my position. So you're fine with things as they are? No, I'm fine with thinking up my next idea. With with that position, I'm absolutely not. I'm 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 completely dissatisfied with what is because I'm always trying to think of what's next as an idea for myself, but not in the global sense of making a better world. Right. It's so just, how do you get from is no to such ought? Thing. There isn't a such thing as a better world. It's just the world. Mm-hmm. Because all of those are it's ultimately not, subjective. Well, there's, there's not going to be a better world. There's just going to be a different world. There's always been going to be a different world. That's all we have until someday there won't be a world. It's just going to be a different world, and sometimes it'll be uh, Tilla the Hun killing people, and sometimes it'll be something else. Is that a great relief? Was it that a point is. that you sort of had to get to? I mean, it seems no, like to some just, extent, once you is. accept that, that's got to be accepted freeing. I accepted it for an awful long time. I mean, I can't remember not accepting the fact that because it seems anything else is silly. I mean, it's absolutely silly. So there's no good? Yeah, I think there's some good and there's evil. Uh, there's terribly evil things. I mean, if you don't think as a Jew, I don't understand evil and the life, my lifetime that lived through a particularly evil time uh, that affected my families, of course I know there's evil. And I know there's some people that are, uh, that, uh, that play the cello well. Well said. <laughs> you know, when we're talking about this, you know, how do you, you can say this is evil, and I'll, I'll agree, but do we, is that something we don't even need to worry about getting to intellectually? Is it just, no, no, you know, no, no, it when no, you no. see I it? I don't make, I, I don't care. You're asking me a question that would be a, a, some Talmudic position that I have about what people should do. <laughs> And I don't have that position. <laughs> you, you're trying to put it into uh, you should do this or shouldn't do this or this is a, a way of doing things or shall we do this or we ought to do this. I, I don't even think about that. Would, should, could, must, that doesn't enter into my vocabulary. Is there anything you'd want to ask me before we wrap up? Why are you doing this? I think because I am worried about the future. I, and, and do you think this is going to have an effect on it? This ties into... I mean, just numerically, it can't. It can't right. affect... Enough. Totally. It, I agree with you Statistically, it's meaningless. The number of people you will reach is statistically negligible. And if I reached everyone, it might be negligible anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't think about that. 
I, I don't think about you. I, I, people, when I did TED, 10,000 people next to, at that time, 250 million people, 280 million people, is a statistical error. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a rounding. It doesn't mean anything. It just doesn't mean anything. So this is not a world movement. It's, it is now with TEDx's and things and, and the TED Talks, but it wasn't. I never meant it to be. And I think even now, does it mean anything? Well, I think it, I think it has an effect on things. I don't think it's a good conference, but I think the TED Talks, even in their stilted, rehearsed manner, have an effect because they bring certain ideas to people who never would be out of their little box. So I think it has a, a, the net effect. I think is very is quite positive. But the eighteen years I was doing it, it was a, it's, it was statistically nothing. Yet those thousand, ten thousand people virally probably had an effect on a hundred million people, and I do believe it did because there were things and that Google was first announced there and the first Macs were shown there and something called Oak was announced there. They changed to Java and Photoshop and the Segway and so forth and so on. Well, that's interesting to see the future first. And yet it's about seeing and not deliberately changing. Well, not to, oh, but I know it will have a change. I think part of this project, it's overcoming irony. Statistically, this project does not matter. And I still intellectually know that. No, but I see, statistically it doesn't matter unless you believe that the statistic of one is more important than the statistic of many. And this may be the statistic of two, myself and my co-host, <laughs> okay. and maybe a couple people who are coming along for the and ride. And that's good enough. And I think that's... That's part of it. But the other part of it is just saying, maybe it doesn't matter. Let's try and kind of embrace the naivety of it. Uh, I think you're doing it because you want to do it. Well, yes, we are doing it because we want to. In fact, we're having a lot of fun doing this project. Yeah, we wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't something that we thought was going to be just entertaining to us, which is sort of what what he's saying throughout the whole piece. But but there's more to it than that, isn't there? I mean, really, oh, there's a hell of a lot more to it than that. And I think that's really the big tension in his conversation. It's that, you know, on one hand, you have to acknowledge that, of course, you're motivated by doing things that you like. Selfishness is always going to be part of what's driving us. But is that a reason to dismiss hope for making anything else better or to set aside the possibility that that's even out there. I mean, I think a big part of this project is dealing with the aftershocks of, uh, of postmodern philosophy in a way. And I know that sounds kind of absurd, but let's see if we can actually build a case for this because I see this project as a response to irony. Does that float with you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when we first were, were formulating the ideas before the project even launched, that was something that we kind of struggled with for a while. The, the seemingly naive idea that this could actually matter. That's a theme we've seen throughout the project as a whole. 
people trying to affect change and struggling with the seemingly naive idea that what they do could actually matter in the scope of history or even in the scope of, of society in any of these, these massive systems. And the people that I find most compelling are the ones that say, yes, that is perhaps a little naive, but we're going to do it anyway. And to jump back into the, the postmodern philosophy thing, for us, well, in the English-speaking world, like in the 70s and 80s, we get this kind of explosion of postmodern philosophy where we start deconstructing things, right? And sometimes that's really good, like when you're talking about race and you can say, wow, look at the way a society like made up this fake concept, like a totally fake concept, and it flies as real. That's an amazing use of that sort of philosophy. But when you take it further, you know, and this is always, there's a slippery slope with this, right? Once you start pulling everything apart, you get to this point where you're like, well, basically everything that everyone is lobbying for is subjective. There is no good or bad. And I mean, this is, you know, that's kind of what Richard says at one point. But he also says, but clearly the Holocaust was evil. And I mean, the Holocaust is the example that anyone who's been in an argument about moral relativism, that always comes up like, well, if you're a moral relativist, is the Holocaust okay? And of course, everyone says, no. Um, so how do you square those things? This is the crisis that Torcello is talking about earlier, and that Francis Whitehead is dealing with this. You know, how do we acknowledge our own flaws and our own biases and our subjectivity and then still go forward? And um, like you, I have so much respect for the people in this project who have grappled with that problem, but have also said you know what, we're not just going to slip into solipsism. We're not just going to go, oh, well, I'm just going for my own pleasure because everything else is relative. I, I like the people who say, okay, that's, that's nice, but there's a lot of stuff that's wrong in the world. Viscerally, I feel it. Intellectually, I know it. And I'm going to try to do something even though I may not be fully right and the odds are against me. Now might be a good point to bring up the idea, again, that we, we used a lot, and uh, we were actually using incorrectly more often than not. If we were recording this episode a few months ago, one of us by now would have already said the word Ragnarok. <laughs> and what's good is that you just did. Well, okay, fair enough. But uh, just to clear things up, the reason we aren't saying that this is yet another instance of that Ragnarok is because... They're slightly different. Ragnarok is facing certain failure you fight on the side of good anyway. This is facing the ease with which you could, as you say, descend into solipsism, not doing that. You're not necessarily facing failure. You're facing... You're facing a world in which you just feel that everyone is selfish and all things are relative. And there's a certain unknowable Hobbesian quality that I think emerges from that. And if I was to take that at one step further, I'd say you're facing a kind of despair that you fortify yourself against through complete hedonism. Or irony. Or irony. But either way, a type of detachment from any responsibility. Right. For making, for trying to make the world better. I mean, you've written off the whole notion of better. Which is something that we very much did not want to do with this project. This project is in our own small way our attempt at at fighting back against that and i think what's interesting is you know the bar to entry 
for interviewees in this project is, I mean, we've been looking for people who are trying fundamentally new ideas. And generally, people who are doing that are doing that because they believe that the world can be made better. Something that I think is surprising to me, and this may just be my own, my own naivety about the way the world works, is the fact that there are people that act and do things and create in the world that don't look at it that way. And it's interesting that the very structure of our project has sort of filtered them out, but they're a very important voice. And I think that's the real value of of Richard's conversation here. It's the reminder that here's a thinker who's done amazing things, you know, and his work, as you know, we talked about briefly, it has had an influence, and it's one that he doesn't care about, but it has, and yet he approaches it so differently than someone like, I don't know, Wes Jackson approaches his work. Right. We, uh, we threw out an interview fairly early on in the project with a very postmodern artist because it didn't, it didn't fit with the project. In the exact same way that actually this conversation doesn't really fit within the project because it's not a conversation about the future. And in addition, one of the themes there is that it's pointless to think about the future and it's pointless to try and change the future because one outcome isn't significantly better than the other. I mean, maybe it's better for you. But what's, what I think is interesting is that now we've chosen to bring this conversation in, where previously we, we didn't. Yeah, and we talked about that at the, at the time of recording that previous conversation. Was it worth bringing a conversation into the project basically to just demonstrate what the conversation with the capitals that we talk about what the conversation isn't, right? To define something by its antithesis. Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating, right? Because here's a conversation about the art of conversation. Here's a conversation with someone who's arranged more conversations than we'll ever arrange in our life, and they've had more influence than probably anything we'll ever do. And yet, as being a participant of a zeitgeist, or in terms of striving for something, not deliberately. This actually makes me want to go back and and talk about our our central thesis again. If the conversation, capitals, does exist and has existed in the past, we've had discussion about how that conversation starts and who it's between. Werman's complete dismissal of, of the conversation suggests something, well, suggests a really interesting genesis of, of the conversation, right? You mean that it's more emergent? Exactly. You know, here we are trying to maybe in some small way create the conversation. And over on the other side, you've got Richard Saul Werman, who is just creating it and not really wanting to. (laughs) And probably ultimately having a massively greater effect than anything we could ever hope to do. So there is something sort of delightful about that. Yes. So I've got a question for you. All right, throw it out. Here we are. We are now 40 episodes in, almost. Yeah. Is the conversation happening today? (laughs) And you're asking me that, huh? I'm asking you that. After all that talk about subjectivity. Well, given that you actually really did just put me on the spot and there's nothing rehearsed about this at all, I would say my gut says no. And I'll tell you why. 
I don't know. I think I've reconceptualized the conversation a little bit since we started. Mm -hmm. I think there is a lot of foundation building that goes on that is actually part of the conversation. Maybe that's happening today. I think the foundation building is going on. But I am interested in those moments where stuff speeds up a lot. When people open their minds enough to start using those elements, to actually put something down on the foundation. It's when there is widespread change. And I feel like there's none of that now. <laughs> and I feel that we could wake up tomorrow and there could be a stock market crash and people could be having the conversation. Or it might not happen for a long time, but I certainly don't think it's happening now. I think that's why we're doing this project. That's my answer to Richard Saul Werman. Because it's not happening now. And if in some small way, if you can give somebody some new idea that maybe they need to talk to somebody over here, then this project has done its job. But as he said, statistically, this project doesn't matter. Sure. And maybe it's just ego on our part, but I think we're betting that he's wrong. And we hope you, our listeners, also are betting he's wrong. Or at least are having as much fun going along for the ride as we are. And uh, let us know what you think on the website, because we actually care what you have to say. And we want you involved in the conversation as well. That was Richard Saul Worman, recorded in his home in Newport, Rhode Island, on November 1st, 2012. This is The Conversation. You can find us on Twitter at, at Angus Anderson and on the web at findtheconversation.com. So, thanks for listening. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Micah Saul. 